3: Hi Molly, my name is Alex. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I'm 27 years old and I am a premium submarine. I just found your podcast and oh my gosh, I cannot even put into words my deep abiding gratitude for you and your work. It is so nice to finally have words for the experiences that I've been going through um, I've been on the spiritual path for a few near years now, and despite that, I have still had this looming dark cloud of fear, grief, sadness, and anger, and um, it's just its so nice to know that I am not crazy and I am not fundamentally flawed in my being. I am currently listening to your Toxic Shame series and have had so many revelations and aha moments um, that has really just shifted things in my mind and in my heart. Um, And I'm just, I'm really, really excited and grateful and just to know that I'm not alone on this path and that I have others who are experiencing the same things as me and we're all on this road together. So thank you.
0: Welcome to Back From The Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire. Burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know it, and now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. I wanna kick things off by thanking Alex for that beautiful voicemail, and thank you for being a member of the Premium Submarines on Patreon. Support from people like you helps me continue doing this. I'm not a rich person by any means, but my Premium Submarines literally pay my bills. They are the reason I was able to resign from my full-time job in March of 2023. I still have to pinch myself sometimes. And I'm never, ever, ever not grateful for being able to do what I do full-time. And I dedicate so much energy and time into the research and reading that I do because I know how busy all of you are. I know how hard it is to scour the internet and know what resources will work and which won't, and so I try my best to do that for you. And my premium submarines on Patreon get even more value, they get ad-free episodes, they get hundreds of hours of bonus content, and on the highest tier you get 3 episodes a week, on the lower tier you get 2 full episodes a week, I provide a ton of value. And what I try to do is make it as easy as possible for busy people who are really, really struggling to get this information. And the Toxic Shame series that I did was by far my most popular one yet, maybe besides my mother and father wound deep dives that I've done. But the deep dive that we're about to start this week on this episode I think it's going to become just as popular as the Toxic Shame series. And Alex's voicemail was absolutely perfect to kick this new series off because we're going to be talking about the concept of spiritual emergency. Alex, you mentioned how powerful it was for you to have words for the experiences that you've been going through and that you've been on this spiritual path for a few years you've had this looming dark cloud of fear and grief and sadness and through listening to what i share you have this sense that you're not crazy you're not alone you're not fundamentally flawed and that's exactly what i want my work to accomplish i know not everyone's going to love what i do but i do it for people like you what i've learned about healing and recovery and I'm only very early on in my path, if I'm being honest, maybe three years or so now, is that this stuff happens in spiraling cycles. And you'll feel like you've made a breakthrough one day, and then you're back in the sadness and grief again, and then you emerge again. This is what it's like going down into the unconscious. And coming back up with new wisdom and integrating it and then you go back down again you get something else and then you bring it to the light and then you go back down and it can feel like you're almost circling a drain but you're not. You're spiraling upwards and you can't really see it until years in the future and then you realize, ah, some of the stuff that used to trigger me so much in the past, it doesn't have that same hold on me anymore. And I hope that through listening to my work i am no guru i'm not a professional nor do i claim to be i'm just someone that can be walking that path alongside you and maybe i'm a little bit further up the mountain than you are right now but i hope it can give you hope that you can get there too and you can and you'll also get there in your own way so if anything i share can provide you with an aha moment just that spark that triggers your own intuitive knowing, that's all I ever want because you are gonna find your own way. I don't have it all figured out, but I hope I can give you some breadcrumbs to follow on your own path. So I mentioned that we would be talking about the concept of something called spiritual emergency. And as always, we're gonna talk about the person who coined this term and his name is Stanislav Grov. My spiritual director recommended I dive into his work and his concept of spiritual emergency. He wrote a book by the same title, so if you find this series interesting, you can go ahead and check it out. I got it on Audible. It was a really great listen, and it did for me what Alex just described. It gave me some aha moments, and even though I'm well far on my path now and I don't buy into the biomedical model of mental health anymore. I don't find the idea of disorder or dysfunction labels helpful for me. And I've mentioned this many times before, but I think some of these labels can be helpful almost like training wheels on a bike can be helpful. Eventually you want to take them off and you want to ride on your own. They are a map. But they are not the territory. And that's about as useful as I think they can be. But they can also be incredibly pathologizing and stigmatizing and damaging. And there's a lot of darkness there, but I'm trying to see the positive side. And that's where I think they can be helpful as long as we don't identify with them too much and stay there too much. It's just like when we start diving into our past traumas, it's amazing that. are hearing a lot of trauma-informed discourse but just as with anything else balance is so important so even if we reject disorder and dysfunction labels i'm also starting to see that in this new age of diving into trauma that everything then becomes trauma and then all we do is start psychoanalyzing ourselves and other people and thinking about our past and then we stay stuck there trauma Information and diving into our past is also like training wheels. We need to go there. We need to dive into those worlds. We need to go into our past and learn about our family, do the family tree stuff so that we can really identify the patterns of generational trauma in our own specific lives. But eventually, we also have to move forward because we don't want to live there. I just finished a long series called Trauma Worlds, and if you're interested in going back on the podcast feed, you can find that quite easily. It's a three-part series where we talk about what happens to us psychologically when we stay in the state of the trauma world, in that state of hypervigilance and anxiety and really seeing the world as a scary place full of bad people where bad things always happen to us because we're still in that traumatized childhood state. We are in a state of arrested development and we wanna move past that. So another thing that I find fascinating and I feel like I'm circling around something that's very important and it's one of the main reasons I've been being invited on a few different podcasts in the last few months is to talk about my view on spirituality and the part that I believe that it plays in what we call mental illness or madness, emotional dysfunction or dysregulation, and how finding a sense of meaning is actually the major key in a recovery path. But the problem is, is that right now is a really difficult time to be diving into spirituality because there is some really fucked up discourse going on. You've got, on one hand, this new-agey bullshit that's going on where you are being sold divine feminine or divine masculine courses for like these courses that are like angel number prices, being taught by people who also have not done any inner work themselves. It's very clear that it's very ego-driven and just done to make profit. You find people that are taking a really capitalist direction in their spiritual path thinking that if they buy every crystal if they do all these things if they wear a certain kind of clothes and they listen to these different frequencies that they're going to find healing and then you also have people that are really dogmatic and they are pursuing more of an abrahamic religious path where they are really really evangelical christians or they are so dogmatic in any other kind of religious path that they think if you don't believe in this, in my God, everything else is demonic and my path is the right path and everyone else is going to hell. So what an overwhelming time to be trying to find some kind of sense of spirituality. What I've found is a path through mysticism, because in every single major religion, there is an esoteric threat. If you know what esoteric and exoteric means, you might hear like esotericism and you might think, oh, that's witchcraft and da-da-da. No. Esoteric essentially just means the inner teachings of all major religions. And when you really start studying religion, theology, and esotericism, as I have for the last few years, you start to see that there are inner mystical threads and in every single religion, including Christianity, including Islam, including Buddhism, all of it, Western esotericism, paganism, all of these different things, there is a connecting thread and that is of experience of divinity for yourself, free of dogma, And you can use tools from any of these different paths. If you feel drawn to Christianity, there is mystical Christianity. If you feel drawn to Islam, there is Sufism. There is a mystical path there. If you find yourself drawn to Buddhism, there is Taoism. That's the mystical thread there. If you are interested, like I am, in Western esotericism, and theosophy, and all of these things, I find beauty in all of it. But the average person doesn't know this and you certainly aren't exposed to it in everyday life that's why it's called esotericism because it's the hidden inner teachings i truly believe that right now younger generations are dying for spirituality they know that there is a deeper truth there and we are seeing all of these incredible advancements in quantum computing and consciousness and even our own government here in the United States. There's a lot of infighting and shit going down when it comes to disclosing information about non-human intelligence and unidentified um, aerial phenomena, whatever you want to call that. But what we're seeing right now is that there is more than this Material reality. There is more than just you believe in my God or you are bad and demonic and you're going to hell. And younger generations sense this, but they don't have the tools. And many times when we are experiencing what the biomedical model of mental health would describe as a mental breakdown or emotional or personality disorder or psychosis or schizophrenia, whatever you want to whatever label they're throwing at you is you are experiencing something called spiritual emergency and that's what we're going to be talking about today and we're going to be doing it through the lens of exploring the work of stanislav grov because he dived into this and i really believe that the right people are going to find this series and it is going to change your life like it's changed mine Now because I want us to be able to dive into this and experience no breaks whatsoever, I am going to take care of giving a shout out to my sponsors right at the top of the episode and do a short ad break so that you can have an uninterrupted experience for the rest of the episodes. My sponsors and these dynamically inserted ads, similar to what you would hear on YouTube, allow me to continue making this podcast for those who choose to listen for free. As i mentioned at the beginning of the episode if you'd prefer an ad-free experience you can sign up for patreon at patreon.com back from the borderline my first sponsor is Jung platform a unique online space dedicated to exploring the depths of psychology and personal growth through the lens of carl jung's teachings Jung platform is on a mission to make the transformative wisdom of carl jung accessible to everyone and you know so much of what I share here is through the lens of depth psychology. So, if you love what I share, you will love the courses available on Young Platform. And the people at Young Platform believe in the power of this knowledge to change lives, offering a wide range of courses that dive deep into topics like dream work, mythology, and the psychology of relationships. Each course on the platform is taught by highly qualified instructors. These are experts in their fields, many of whom with a PhD in their particular area of expertise. And these teachers bring not just knowledge, but a passion for Jungian psychology. So whether you are a professional looking to deepen your practice, or someone exploring personal growth and healing like most of my listeners are, there is something there for everyone. And by engaging with these courses, you can hope to gain profound insights into your own psyche, learn the art of understanding dreams, and embark on a journey of self-discovery and transformation. And there's something special for you. When you visit backfromtheborderline.com and click on the link for Young Platform, you can use the code Molly10 at checkout to receive 10% off your first course. Remember, This code is valid for all courses, except for their official certification programs. So don't miss this chance to explore the rich world of Carl Jung's work and wisdom. So visit backfromtheborderline.com, click on the Jung platform link, and remember to use the code Molly10 for your discount and begin your journey into the depths of your own psyche today. My second sponsor is Pure Spectrum CBD a company that's redefining the standards of CBD products. At Pure Spectrum, Purity isn't just part of the name, it's their promise. Their products are crafted with the highest quality, organically grown hemp, ensuring that you get the purest form of CBD. CBD has been gaining recognition for its potential benefits, which include supporting relaxation, managing everyday stresses, and helping in achieving a more balanced, healthy lifestyle. So whether you are new to CBD or an experienced user, Pure Spectrum has a range of products to fit your needs. Similar to With Young Platform, all you need to do is go to backfromtheborderline.com, follow the Pure Spectrum link, and enjoy a 15% discount on your first order. If you need a little bit of recommendation, There's going to be lots of different products there for you to choose from for me i really struggle with sleep and relaxation especially around my menstrual cycle and they have an incredible cbd cbn nighttime tincture that really helps me when i'm struggling at that time of the month and it helps me fall asleep and stay asleep so that's my recommendation but all of their products are great and don't forget cbd can interact with certain medications so if you're at all unsure about how to use it or if you should just check with your doctor and remember that you are your own best advocate what works for me won't necessarily work for you so just make sure to do your due diligence in that regard and now time for a quick ad break these ads are dynamically inserted i don't choose them they just help keep listeners who choose to listen for free to be able to do so. And when we are back, we will dive straight into the work of Stanislav Grov and the concept of spiritual emergency.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: So to set us up to dive into the concept of spiritual emergency, it's important for us to understand who is Stanislav Grav and why is his work important, especially in the context of the work we do here on Back from the Borderline. Stanislav Grav is 92 years old and he is still alive. He is a Czech psychiatrist with a significant influence in the field of psychology and psychiatry, especially known for his pioneering work in the area of psychedelic therapy and transpersonal psychology. Stanislav Grov initially studied medicine in Prague and he decided later on to focus on psychiatry and his early research was centered on the clinical uses of psychedelic substances. He's one of the founders and chief theoreticians of transpersonal psychology, and he spent several years as a researcher at Johns Hopkins University and later at the Esalen Institute. He developed a methodology for psychotherapy and self-exploration known as the holotropic breathwork, and he wrote extensively on topics related to spiritual psychology non-ordinary states of consciousness, and the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. Because we spend so much time talking about the negative aspects of the biomedical model of mental health, and for those of you who are new or need a refresher, the biomedical model of mental health is essentially the primary model that we view things through in today in the west when it comes to madness or mental illness as we refer to it. And the biomedical model essentially boils down to the fact and the belief that mental illness or madness is down to chemical imbalances in the brain, disorder or dysfunctions, disordered personalities, these different DSM diagnoses, and that the best we can hope for is for these disorders and dysfunctions to be managed, to manage our symptoms and Manage them usually through the use of psychiatric medications or these different kind of controlling types of therapy like CBD, changing your thoughts, and kind of the belief that mental illness is genetic. It's all very medical. And some of these transpersonal psychiatrists and psychologists are fighting against that. And Stanislav Grov is one of those. So I thought it'd be interesting to really... Contrast the beliefs of someone like Stanislav Grov, who is also a psychiatrist, (laughs) and talk about how his beliefs differ from scientism and the biomedical model. So Grov's approach goes beyond traditional psychiatric models because he incorporates spiritual and transcendent aspects of the human experience. And he challenges the reductionist view that reduces psychological phenomena only to physical processes in the brain. He emphasizes the importance of spiritual and existential dimensions in understanding the human psyche. And his methods also integrate various aspects of human consciousness and are more inclusive of spiritual, cultural, and historical contexts compared to those of the biomedical model. Grave coined the term, quote, spiritual emergency to describe a crisis often experienced as part of the spiritual growth process, and it represents a period of intense and profound psychological turmoil that has the potential for positive transformative outcomes if it's seen in this way and it's not pathologized as a disorder or dysfunction. That's the key. So, spiritual emergency crises often manifest as non ordinary states of consciousness that might be misdiagnosed as psychiatric disorders, but are, according to Grov, manifestations of a natural process of psychological growth and self discovery. Grov advocates for supportive and understanding care for individuals undergoing spiritual emergencies which contrasts with more traditional psychiatric interventions which rely on scientism and the biomedical model. So why am I sharing his work with you, my listener? Well, in an era where mental health is often approached with a rigid, clinical perspective, Groff's emphasis on spiritual and personal growth offers a more holistic alternative. Groff's approach challenges the tendency to label intense emotional experiences as disorders or dysfunctions. He suggests that these experiences can actually be part of a natural, transformative process. His holotropic breathwork practice, which he developed, can be seen as a tool to navigate and integrate these intense emotional and spiritual experiences offering an alternative to conventional psychiatric treatments. Grov's contributions are particularly relevant today because they offer a different lens through which we can view mental health. And through this lens, it's emphasizing the importance of personal growth, spiritual experiences, and the transformative potential of what are often seen as psychological crises. His ideas challenge the current trend of intellectualizing and pathologizing mental health and encourage a more inclusive holistic approach to understanding the depths of the human psyche. So I came across an article that Stanislav wrote and it is extensive and it's called Spiritual Emergencies Understanding and Treatment of Psycho-Spiritual Crises. And we're going to work our way through some of the key takeaways in this article and I'll provide some reactions and reflections that are from my more modern perspective of my journey as well as what I've heard from my listeners. I chuckle because a few weeks back I received a more negative podcast review, basically shitting on me saying that all I do is read articles and pieces of books And part of me is just like, well, yeah, because I'm drawing on the knowledge of people that have some pretty powerful credentials. I'm reading through the information and providing my reactions and reflections and making this information more readily available to people who need it. And so if that's not what you're into, then don't listen. It's pretty, pretty simple, you know, but it never ceases to amaze me how people take the time to just like rage out their projections onto podcast reviews it's it's certainly a learning experience for me and allows me to work through my own stuff because I have to see that stuff respect the fact that people are hurting and angry and tend to do those things and there's nothing I can do about it but for those of you who enjoy this kind of stuff well great the podcast is for you So we're going to be diving into this article when I say there's fucking gems in here. I can't wait to dive into it together and just unpack it over the next few weeks. Similar to what I did with the Toxic Shame series, I did exactly that. We dove into the work of John Bradshaw over an eight-episode series, and that was my most popular series yet. And not only was it popular and received a lot of plays, it also resulted in the biggest wave of feedback that I've ever received and it helped so many people. So if this kind of stuff isn't for you, that's okay, but I'm going to continue on with this path because it feels right to me and it's helping a lot of people. So let's just dive into what Stanislav Grov has to say about spiritual emergencies. This information is just not readily available at all. The average therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist is not going to be able to spot this kind of phenomena in someone. And so therefore, someone that's going through something like this is often labeled disordered or dysfunctional or crazy just because the person who might be treating them isn't trained to spot this kind of information or this kind of phenomena rather. And so that's why I think It feels like a duty for me to share this information because it opened my eyes. It helped me realize what was happening to me because I also had many, many symptoms of spiritual emergency, of dark night of the soul, and reading this work has profoundly changed my life. So let's go ahead and dig right in. Stanislav writes, One of the most important implications of the research of holotropic states is the realization that many of the conditions which are currently diagnosed as psychotic and indiscriminately treated by suppressive medication are actually difficult stages of a radical personality transformation and of spiritual opening. If they're correctly understood and supported, These psychospiritual crises can result in emotional and psychosomatic healing, remarkable psychological transformation, and consciousness evolution. Episodes of this nature can be found in the live stories of shamans, founders of the great religions of the world, famous spiritual teachers, mystics, and saints. Mystical literature of the world describes these crises as important signposts of the spiritual path and confirms their healing and transformative potential. Mainstream psychiatrists do not differentiate psychospiritual crises or even episodes of uncomplicated mystical experiences from serious mental diseases because of their narrow conceptual framework. Academic psychiatry, being a subdiscipline of medicine, has a strong preference for biological interpretations and uses a model of the psyche limited to postnatal biography and the Freudian individual unconscious. These are serious obstacles in understanding the nature and content of mystical states and the ability to distinguish them from manifestations of mental disease. So just taking a break here to reflect on what we've read so far is that when you look back, Hundreds to thousands of years, especially through different cultures. When someone presented with some of these symptoms that we now label schizophrenia, personality disorders, madness, mental illness, deep depression, thousands of years ago in different cultures and hundreds of years ago, just throughout the ages, some of these cultures would have immediately known and spotted these as what Stanislav describes as signposts of someone who is experiencing the emergence of a more mystical view of life, of a more spiritual nature, these symptoms, instead of signs of a biological disorder or imbalance. And so even though right now many of us believe that we've had never-ending progress, we've just gotten better and better and better at things, Absolutely, medicine is incredible. We now can cure things and fix things medically that would have killed us hundreds of years ago or even less than that. So I'm not shitting on uh, modern medicine. It's absolutely incredible. But what we're finding is that psychiatrists, even though they go to medical school, I think that's the wrong path, and many psychiatrists like Stanislav here, as well as others who are critical of psychiatry, are saying, hmm, maybe we shouldn't treat the psyche and human emotional experience like we would a tumor in the human body. And so it seems as though we need to go back in time a bit and realize that maybe the ancients and people of the past handled these things a little bit better than we do now. He continues by writing the term spiritual emergency or psycho-spiritual crisis, which my wife Christina and I coined for these states, alludes to their positive potential. In English, this term is a play on words, reflecting the similarity between the word emergency, a suddenly appearing acute crisis, and emergence or surfacing or rising, it thus suggests both a problem and an opportunity to rise to a higher level of psychological functioning and spiritual awareness. I love this here because I love that he says that these symptoms, quote unquote, that we experience, they are indeed an emergency, a crisis, because we're not saying they aren't painful and horrible and bad and in need of assistance right but it's also an opportunity something is trying to emerge from us and it goes perfectly with what i share on the podcast about performing emotional alchemy and viewing our symptoms as saviors our symptoms are trying to tell us something right so He continues by saying, We often refer in this context to the Chinese pictogram for crisis that illustrates the basic idea of spiritual emergency. This ideogram is composed of two images, one of which means danger and the other opportunity. Among the benefits that can result from psychospiritual crises that receive expert support and are allowed to run their natural course are improved psychosomatic health, Increased zest for life, a more rewarding life strategy, and an expanded worldview that includes the spiritual dimension. Successful completion and integration of these spiritual emergency episodes also involves a substantial reduction of aggression, increase of racial, political, and religious tolerance, ecological awareness, and deep changes in the hierarchy of values and existential priorities. It's not an exaggeration to say that successful completion and integration of psycho-spiritual crisis can move the individual to a higher level of consciousness evolution. Again, reiterating this idea, right? That these symptoms that we experience that are so painful and dark, it's like Alexandra said in her voicemail, she's having this grief, this darkness. There is danger and there is opportunity here. And if we can view these things through a psycho-spiritual lens, through this more integral perspective, we can then experience the opportunity on the other side of this danger. And I've experienced this myself. The moment that I started diving into my spiritual path, diving into depth psychology, myth, and mysticism, I realized that what I was going through was normal, natural, and an amazing opportunity for me to grow spiritually as a person. And I still experience bouts of depression and grief, but now I feel like I have the tools with which to work with these experiences. Whereas before I felt disordered, dysfunctional, broken, and like there was no hope. And so for me, I just don't see any other choice but to view things through this lens because it's so much more empowering. So he continues by saying in recent decades, we've seen rapidly growing interest in spiritual matters that leads to extensive experimentation with ancient, aboriginal, and modern technologies of the sacred, consciousness-expanding techniques that can mediate spiritual opening. Among them are various shamanic methods Eastern meditative practices, use of psychedelic substances, effective experiential psychotherapies, and laboratory methods developed by experimental psychiatry. According to public polls, the number of Americans who've had spiritual experiences significantly increased in the second half of the 20th century and continues to grow. It seems that this has been accompanied by a parallel increase of psychospiritual crises. I'm going to take another break here to provide some reactions and reflections because he's talking here about the explosion of Western people embracing the practices and different spiritual beliefs in various different indigenous beliefs, um, various different religions maybe that aren't from the West. And I think there are positives and negatives to this just like anything else, and I'll share with you some of the negatives that I see. It's very common, especially if someone is a white person, to receive a lot of shit and blowback saying, you're appropriating someone else's culture. And while I do believe there is, some, there is absolutely truth to that, I also believe that in order for us to evolve from a consciousness perspective as a human race, We need to understand and learn about the practices, beliefs, and rituals of other cultures. But this must be approached with a great amount of reverence. And what I've experienced is that for me, my ancestry is in Scotland, England, in various different areas of the Nordic countries, and Eastern Europe, primarily. That's where my ancestry is. And I deeply have found that I resonate with Western esotericism, contemplative Christianity, all of these things, some of the more quote-unquote pagan uh, beliefs that essentially were appropriated by Christianity. There is a connecting thread there. And I find that I deeply resonate with those practices. And I think it has to do with the fact that it's almost like my body recognizes that. However, I make it my business to also learn what I can from other religions. Part of what created the explosion and connectedness of various different mystical traditions was the Silk Road was people from the East and the West traveling along these trading routes and sharing and mixing their traditions and these practices of alchemy and esotericism and occultism. And it was a huge melting pot of spirituality. And this allowed people to meet each other. And instead of saying, you've got this right, you've got this wrong, they thought, oh, look, we actually share a lot of these similar beliefs yes we differ in the way that we might approach these things but at the core of it some of the things that we believe are are similar and it is through this mixing mingling melting pot that we saw an explosion of spiritual development the renaissance right and so now you'll often see a lot of people saying don't appropriate someone else's religion and we're so black and white now we are splitting on each other saying that you can't speak about eastern mysticism you can't speak about this because you're white or because you're this and you're not the right color to be saying this that and the other and that is where i think we've become quite regressive quite frankly it doesn't mean that there are people out there who are absolutely just appropriating these beliefs buying a crystal or staging their house without even learning about the purpose behind this and not approaching it with a sense of reverence. And for me personally, also I have a personal, and making that very strong emphasis, belief that certain practices will resonate with you more potentially if they are resonating with your ancestry. So for me, I'm not saging my house, but I do burn frankincense on a coal. I really work with a lot of different herbs and essential oils. And I found that these are practices that my ancestors were also very into. And so that's what works for me. But I also feel like it is my duty as a spiritual practitioner who's growing in the path to learn with reverence about different spiritual traditions. One of my favorite spiritual traditions that I've learned about is the Huna tradition, which is practiced by Pacific Islanders, particularly in the Hawaii area. And they have some of the most absolutely beautiful, beautiful mythology, the way they work with spirituality and dreams, similarly to the aboriginal beliefs from the natives of Australia. So That's my hot take on kind of like the spiritual appropriation thing. I feel like anyone who's attacking people saying, don't do this, don't do that. Everyone is on their spiritual path, but it is essential that we approach these things with reverence and also understand where you came from, really dive into what your ancestors believed and practiced too, and always just have a respect and reverence for what you're learning. And don't listen to people who are saying, just because you're X skin color, you can't do X. No one can tell you what to do. Only you know the reverence through which you are approaching these things. Find out what works for you. Don't listen to the words and black and white splitting behaviors of these people who are so caught up in ideological groupthink that in reality, they're the ones that are suffering, they're suffering, because they wouldn't be lashing out like that if they were psychologically integrated and seeing each other as all being connected. And no one has the right to tell you what your spiritual path is. My spiritual director and the spiritual institution that I'm connected with has spiritual elders from almost every single indigenous tradition. No one knows what I'm doing in my spiritual path. There's so much I'm doing behind the scenes that I choose not to talk about. So whenever I receive any feedback, which is honestly very few and far between, but it happens whenever I hear anything about appropriation or that I'm not respecting other traditions, I can brush it off. It doesn't affect me at all because I know that I'm approaching this with reverence. I know that what I'm doing is right for me. And I feel good about it in my heart. And that's all that matters. So for anyone who's kind of had those feelings or had anyone say that kind of thing to you, I hope that me sharing this can help ease your mind. So Stanislav continues by saying, More and more people seem to realize that genuine spirituality, based on profound personal experience, is a vitally important dimension of life. In view of the escalating global crisis brought about by the materialistic orientation of Western technological civilization, it's become obvious that we are paying a great price for having rejected spirituality. We have banned from our life a force that nourishes, empowers, and gives meaning to human existence. On the individual level, the toll for the loss of spirituality is an impoverished, alienated, and unfulfilling way of life and an increase of emotional and psychosomatic disorders on the collective level the absence of spiritual values leads to strategies of existence that threaten the survival on our planet such as the plundering of non-renewable resources polluting the natural environment disturbing ecological balance and using violence as a principal means of international problem solving Wow. Well, if we're not seeing that all play out right here and right now, in this moment, with everything that's going on in the world, talk about being right on the nose. We are a spiritually starved society. We are caught up in what Stanislav describes as this materialistic orientation of Western technological civilization. We see everything through science, through advancement at all costs, more, 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 give me more, I need to achieve more, I need to accumulate more, and also just completely rejecting the spiritual nature, rejecting the idea that we are one connected family and that the world and the things in it are alive and respond to us. And that's quite regressive. Even though we would like to believe we're in a very progressive society, we are not. We are regressing right now. Stanislav writes, It's therefore in the interest of all of us to find ways of bringing spirituality back into our individual and collective life. This would have to include not only theoretical recognition of spirituality as a vital aspect of existence, but also encouragement and social sanctioning of activities that mediate experiential access to spiritual dimensions of reality. And an important part of this effort would have to be development of an appropriate support system for people undergoing crises of spiritual opening, which would make it possible to utilize the positive potential of these states. And what he's saying here is that, you know, we're seeing, especially with the youth of today, how many articles do you see written that say things like, behind the Gen Z mental health crisis? millennials are more depressed than ever before, you know, what's the impact of social media on today's youth? We're so concerned, (laughs) quote-unquote, about the state, the mental state of the youth of today, but we're not addressing the core issue, is that we are collectively screaming out for a deeper sense of meaning, this society focused on materialism and scientism and just focusing on this 3D experience intuitively, younger generations especially know "Mm, there's gotta be more than this. And I don't want to just say it's younger generations because there's a whole group of boomers. For example, baby boomers get a lot of shit, but don't forget that there was a group of people that were living in the 60s and 70s that were so, so, so dedicated to resisting illegitimate authority. They were like the hippie movement. They were protesting against things like the war in Vietnam. They started living in communes and really experimenting with psychedelics. They really paved the way. But what was weird is that I think a lot of it got a little bit culty People were unbalanced in their approach to this. And I think it was very easy for people to say, see, look at those crazy hippies. But they really started something very special. But right now we have an opportunity to maybe create a more integrated version of what they started. Because what happened was there was a huge reaction to that hippie movement of the 60s. It all got shut down and then it went really hard into medication and pathologizing of the human experience, the biomedical model what disorder or dysfunction do you have? How many medications are you on? Numb and suppress yourself so that you can be a productive member of society, you know? So how can we find a balance between those things? So in a different section of this exploration, Stanislav talks about the different types of triggers of spiritual emergency, because we want to know how does this happen? How does it come about? Many people talk about These feelings and spiritual emergency I've also heard described from a mystical perspective as a dark night of the soul, when you feel like you're just thrust into the psychological underworld. So let's hear what he says about this. Maybe it will give you some insight into what you might be going through. So in many instances, it's possible to identify the situation that precipitated the psychospiritual crisis. It can primarily be a physical factor, like a disease, accident, or operation. At other times, extreme physical exertion or prolonged lack of sleep might appear to be the most immediate trigger. In women, it can be childbirth, miscarriage, or abortion. We have also seen situations where the onset of the process coincided with an exceptionally powerful sexual experience, In other cases, the psycho-spiritual crisis begins shortly after a traumatic emotional experience. This can be the loss of an important relationship, such as the death of a child or another close relative, divorce, or the end of a love affair. Similarly, a series of failures or a loss of a job or property can immediately precede the onset of spiritual emergency. In predisposed individuals, the quote-unquote last straw can be an experience with psychedelic substances or a session of experiential psychotherapy. So let's take a break and talk about this. I'm going to share some very personal reflections because I feel like it might be helpful for anyone going through something like this. My own spiritual emergency, which I had no idea of what it was at the time. It all I knew is that I was suffering mentally and physically more than I ever had my entire life and it led me to an office of a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with first bipolar 2 because he told me trust me you don't want to have borderline because borderline is incurable that was my first experience at quote-unquote seeking help and I left his office after a 15-minute appointment with two different medications and then subsequent appointments where I felt like these medications didn't work and they actually led to a bunch of side effects for me. He then increased my dose, put me on different ones. And by the time I was done with whatever you call treatment with him, I had been on six different types of medications and had like three different psychiatric labels. And I felt worse than I had when I went into his office. Never once did he ask me what happened to me. Um, He just really seemed like he wanted me in and out. But let's talk about how I was feeling at that time. I was having serious physical and emotional symptoms. I was having breakouts of really bad hives randomly. My eyes were red. I felt tired. I had no energy. I barely had the ability to feed myself. I was incredibly depressed, incredibly suicidal. I was having multiple panic attacks a day to where i could barely breathe i was very isolated i didn't have a lot of friends or connections i felt unable to maintain those connections i was obsessively dating and trying to find the one which led me to falling into the arms and beds of people who were absolutely predatory and not right for me and As for what was going on in my life, my grandfather had recently committed suicide, which was a failed suicide attempt, which was incredibly traumatic on our family. Nobody talked about it. It was very hush-hush. No one's really talked about it to this day. Just was sort of swept under the rug. And about three months after that, my grandmother, who was one of the most important people, if not the most important person in my life, because she was someone who showed me a lot of love and unconditional caring and really encouraged my dramatic too muchness when I was young, whereas I felt like that was kind of smashed out of me by everyone else around me at that time. So the dramatic nature of my death of my grandfather and the subsequent silence of my family around that and the death of my grandmother, as well as Also, I was living in L.A. at the time and I was really close to potentially getting a record deal for my songwriting. And I had a manager who um, was pretty sexually abusive at that time and they dropped me. My lawyer and my manager dropped me when I tried to call them out on this behavior. And that led to the producer I was working with, who was obviously very close with my manager and lawyer, he dropped me too and took all of my masters and all the music I had been working with him. So there I was with living in LA with no friends and all this trauma that had just happened. And I was just, and I began looking into working in sex work and the kind of sex work I pursued was working in these underground poker rooms where a bunch of very prominent celebrities were there. And so I was exposed to some of the darkest, seediest parts of LA and This led me to the deepest, darkest time of my life where I just wanted to die. And if I had found myself in the office of someone like Stanislav Grov, I may have found someone who could understand what I was going through as a spiritual emergency. But unfortunately, I did not. I found myself down the path of the biomedical model, which led to two of the darkest years of my life, where I was on and off medication and getting worse and worse instead of better. And so I wanted to share this because I think this is the path that many other people find themselves on. And they start thinking, what's wrong with me? There's something wrong with me. Why is this medication not helping? It's because we're not getting to the root of the issue. And sometimes it is this spiritual emergency process, this spiritual crisis process. I also had multiple instances of sexual abuse and sexual assault, also with a childhood and adolescence full of grooming at the hands of older men that began online and then transitioned into real life, one of those people being the husband of a teacher at the school that my mom worked at, and I had parents who kind of just looked the other way at my suffering, and I just had nothing to lean on. I had no spiritual grounding. I felt so deeply empty. I felt like there was no meaning in life and that there was something wrong with me. And that is a recipe for a very unhealthy and unhappy person. So let's continue to read about what Stanislav Grof writes as these triggers. I hope that me sharing a little bit about my background can help you maybe find yourself in certain aspects of what I shared. So he writes, One of the most important catalysts of psychospiritual crisis seems to be deep involvement in various forms of meditation and spiritual practice. This should not come as a surprise since these methods have been specifically designed to facilitate spiritual experiences. We've been repeatedly contacted by people in whom extended periods of holotropic states were triggered by the practice of Zen, Vipassana, or different types of Buddhist meditation, yogic practices, Sufi ceremonies, monastic contemplation, or Christian prayer. The wide range of triggers of spiritual crises clearly suggests that the individual's readiness for inner transformation plays a far more important role than external stimuli. When we look for a common denominator or final common pathway to the situations described above, we find that they all involve a radical shift in the balance between the unconscious and conscious processes. Weakening of psychological defenses or conversely, an increase of the energetic charge of the unconscious dynamics makes it possible for the unconscious and superconscious material to emerge into consciousness. So he talks here about, you know, not only can these incredibly traumatic experiences cause like a rapid awakening, like what I described, some people that really dive deeply, maybe before they're ready, and before they've kind of integrated some of their trauma, if they just dive straight into some of these serious spiritual practices, it can trigger these spiritual emergency crises. Because what he's saying is, is that it's almost like our unconscious material just spills over. Because if we haven't dealt with the unconscious, if we don't make the unconscious conscious, it's going to spill out whether that be through traumatic experiences or serious spiritual practice that is undertaken without any kind of psychological work that accompanies it. He goes on to write, It's well known that psychological defenses can be weakened by a variety of biological insults, such as physical trauma, exhaustion, sleep deprivation, or intoxication. Psychological traumas can mobilize the unconscious, particularly when they involve elements that are reminiscent of early traumas and are part of a significant coex system. I'm not sure what that is. The strong potential of childbirth as a trigger of psycho-spiritual crisis seems to reflect the fact that delivering a child combines biological weakening with specific reactivation of the mother's own perinatal memories so this is sort of an academic uh paragraph here so let's just unpack it essentially what he's saying is is that it's pretty common for women who are giving birth for this to trigger a spiritual emergency which is interesting because we talk and hear a lot about postpartum depression it'd be interesting to view postpartum depression as a spiritual emergency because if you had a particularly traumatic childbirth And there's a lot of research into saying that, for example, like maybe being removed from your mom there, there's been a lot of improvement in the way that we handle childbirth in the last couple of decades, because it was very common to just be completely removed from your mom right when you were born. Or perhaps you had some kind of illness where you had to be put in an incubator, right? Or you were delivered by C-section. A lot of this, there was no choice. It's not like your mom wanted this to happen. But needless to say, these traumatic, quote unquote, perinatal memories when you were very, very young, they are still embedded in your unconscious and traumatic early infancy memories can potentially reemerge for you once you go through the process of childbirth. I am at a point in my path where I'm considering motherhood and I had a particularly traumatic early infancy time period. I was delivered by C-section and then shortly after I was born, um, my mom used cloth diapers to be more friendly to the environment, which is great. Um, but apparently when my umbilical cord was cut, um, you know, basically when you cut the umbilical cord, it's kind of like an open wound and my mom used cloth diapers and it turns out that the cloth diaper kind of fostered a wet environment that turned into a staph infection in my blood and I almost died. And so I was hospitalized um, for a significant period of time, very, very early on in my infancy where I had to be in an incubator. And these things for an infant are incredibly traumatic because the infant needs physical touch and needs to be held. And an infant doesn't know what's going on. So you can imagine tiny baby Molly was going, what the fuck, right? Like I'm in this box and my mom can't touch me. I'm sick. What's going on? I don't have any of the things I need, which is safety, touch from my mom, you know, being able to be breastfed, these kinds of things. And my mom and dad were absolutely terrified. And again, as babies, we can sense the energies of our parents. And and also my mom and dad had no control over this happening. It's not their fault, but I'm aware that my process of becoming a mother and now that i know that childbirth for me may trigger some of these perinatal memories i am going into this with a conscious understanding that i'm going to need to do some serious active imagination work around this and if and when i decide to have a child i will be working on this stuff throughout my pregnancy so that i can be prepared for these memories so if you're someone who experienced deep postnatal depression or anything like that and you had some of these symptoms of spiritual emergency maybe you can look at this through a new lens and if you are aware of what your own childbirth was like and if you're someone who is thinking about potentially having a child in the future it's really important work for you to ask your parent if you can what was what was my childbirth like um Did I have any sickness? Were you hospitalized? And really start talking about this and thinking about it and maybe doing some work that feels right for you around these concepts. And this is something that blew my mind. And I talked a little bit about the impact of traumatic childbirth and early infancy memories a few episodes ago. And I received quite a few emails from people saying, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, when I thought about it, I really realized that that had a lot more weight to it than I thought it did. So maybe this will be something that might help you. So he continues saying failures and disappointments in professional and personal life can undermine and thwart the outward oriented motivations and ambitions of the individual. This makes it more difficult to use external activities as an escape from emotional problems and leads to psychological withdrawal and turning of attention to the inner world. As a result, unconscious contents can emerge into consciousness and interfere with the individual's everyday experience or even completely override it so this is particularly fascinating too because he's talking about failures and disappointments in professional and personal life so like losing a job or if it's like what i went through you know completely having the bottom fall out of your dreams like with my songwriting career and at the time too i was dating someone who was an actor in LA and I just thought, okay, if I can only lock this guy down, I'll be safe forever. It doesn't matter if my life is a mess, he's stable and it'll be fine. Not only did the bottom fall out of my career, that guy like dumped me completely out of the blue. And I'm giving this as an example because what he's saying is these failures and disappointments in professional and personal life that are just like distractions. I was thinking, oh yeah, I'm dating an actor. I am almost like got my record deal. Everything's great. I wasn't at all looking at my unconscious mind. And often many of us use work in our personal life, putting all of our hopes in a quote-unquote potential romantic partner as an escape from our emotional problems and an excuse to not do this inner work. And I'm making a quick pause to apologize for the dog barking that's going on. We have a very chatty dog named Dory, who lives next door to me, and I keep having to pause to wait for her to finish her barking panic attacks, but some of the barks are going to make their way into the recording, and I apologize for that, but she's very sweet. Bless her, Dory. But anyways, we use these things as an escape from our inner world, and when the bottom falls out, when the person breaks up with us, or the job or the dream falls apart, we are left with nothing but looking straight into the abyss of the underworld and our unconscious stuff and that is life's way of saying look at this shit are you going to deal with it or are you going to keep trying to escape so the next section that stanislav talks about in this exploration of spiritual emergency is how is this state diagnosed When we emphasize the need to recognize the existence of psychospiritual crises, this does not mean indiscriminate rejection of the theories and practices of traditional psychiatry. Not all states that are currently diagnosed as psychotic are crises of psychospiritual transformation or have a healing potential. Episodes of non-ordinary states of consciousness cover a very broad spectrum, from purely spiritual experiences to conditions that are clearly biological in nature and require medical treatment. While modern psychiatrists generally tend to pathologize mystical states, there also exists the opposite error of romanticizing and glorifying psychotic states, or even worse, overlooking a serious medical problem. Many mental health professionals who encounter the concept of psychospiritual crisis want to know the exact criteria by which one can make the differential diagnosis between a crisis of this kind, a spiritual emergency, and actual psychosis. Unfortunately, it's in principle impossible to make such differentiation according to the standards used in somatic medicine. Unlike diseases treated by somatic medicine, psychotic states that are not obviously organic in nature, functional psychoses, are not medically defined. The commonly used laboratory examinations of blood, urine, stool, and cerebrospinal fluid, as well as EEG, x-rays, and other similar methods don't yield any useful clues in this regard. It's actually highly questionable whether these conditions should be called diseases at all. Functional psychoses certainly are not diseases in the same sense as diabetes, typhoid fever, or pernicious anemia. They do not yield any specific clinical or laboratory findings that would support the diagnosis and justify the assumption that they're of a biological origin. The diagnosis of these states is based entirely on the observation of unusual experiences and behaviors for which contemporary psychiatry lacks adequate explanation. The meaningless attribute endogenous, literally meaning generated from within, used for these conditions is tantamount to admission of this ignorance. At present, there's no reason to refer to these conditions as mental diseases and assume that the experiences involved are products of a pathological process in the brain yet to be discovered by future research. If we give it some thought, we realize that it's highly unlikely that a pathological process afflicting the brain could, in and of itself, generate the incredibly rich experiential spectrum of the states currently diagnosed as psychotic. How could possibly abnormal processes in the brain generate such experiences as culturally specific sequences of psychospiritual death and rebirth, convincing identification with Christ on the cross or with the dancing Shiva, an episode involving death on the barricades in Paris during the French Revolution, or complex scenes of alien abduction? So let's take a tiny break here to just really unpack what we just read. What I like is the balanced approach because we do have an issue where some people just completely reject any kind of medical problem at all and think everything is spiritual. We do need balance and there are times where even psychiatric medication like needing to maybe have a benzo or need like a sedative might be appropriate in certain situations because some people might be about to hurt themselves or other people so we can't just reject all of this outright or someone being convinced that they are Jesus Christ themselves and going into a completely psychotic state right there are times where there is something going on and treatment is required But the problem is, is that some people that are genuinely experiencing what we call spiritual emergency, and for those of you who are long-term listeners, you'll know that recently I interviewed Chris and Ryan Bledsoe on my podcast, two people who have experienced incredible amounts of encounters with non-human intelligence and experienced unidentified aerial phenomena and were stigmatized, scapegoated, and pathologized by their entire community, their church, even by the Discovery Channel doing a documentary on them. And now they're being completely uh, liberated in the fact that the History Channel is now doing documentaries on Chris Bledsoe and studying his brain. And a neurologist actually proved that he had some kind of connection to this unidentified aerial phenomena and the thing is is that sometimes when people like that end up in the office of a psychiatrist they are pathologized and told that they're crazy when in reality they are having seriously mystical experiences and the same goes for maybe someone who has a vision of an angel or something like that experiencing altered states of consciousness And when someone finds themselves in an office of someone who is operating purely from the biomedical model in these instances, it's not good because they are not in the right place. They are going to be maybe drugged and told that they're crazy. And this just adds another layer of despair and dysfunction to the picture. So he goes on to write, when similar experiences manifest under circumstances in which the biological changes are accurately defined, such as the administration of specific dosages of chemically pure LSD, the nature and origin of their content remain a deep mystery. The spectrum of possible reactions to LSD is a very broad and includes reliving of various biographical events, experiences of psychospiritual death and rebirth, episodes of mystical rapture, feelings of cosmic unity, sense of oneness with God, and past life memories, as well as paranoid states, manic episodes, apocalyptic visions, exclusively psychosomatic responses, and many others. The same dosage given to different individuals or repeatedly to the same person can induce very different experiences. Yet again, another example of how different people Will experience mystical and psychospiritual states very differently. Some people might have a vision of Shiva. Some might see an apparition of the Virgin Mary. Someone might see unidentified aerial phenomena. Oftentimes these things are filtered through the kind of whatsoever in the collective of unconscious of their the place that they're living or the current culture that they're living in. All of this stuff is things that we do not really understand. But quantum physics and consciousness uh, research is really starting to show and shed light on these things. And there's less stigma attached to these states now than even when Stanislav Grov was doing the primary uh, research that he was doing. For me, I have had psychedelic experiences after, I'm making this very clear, after I did a lot of my psychological work and I'm really glad I did because I had an experience on a certain drug when I was in my teens where I had a very dark experience or what you would call a bad trip and I was hallucinating I was seeing really dark stuff and this is very characteristic of sometimes people doing these things when they're not in a good mental state and that stuff can really spin you out into a bad bad place hence why I think any kind of psychedelic experiences should not just be done on a whim, especially if you're going through a really dark period because it might just make it worse. So he goes on to write, chemical changes in the organism obviously catalyze the experience but are not in and of themselves capable of creating the intricate imagery and the rich philosophical and spiritual insights, let alone mediating access to accurate new information about various aspects of the universe. The administration of LSD and other similar substances can account for the emergence of deep, unconscious material into the consciousness, but cannot explain its nature and content. Understanding the phenomenology of psychedelic states necessitates a much more sophisticated approach than a simple reference to abnormal, biochemical, or biological processes in the body it requires a comprehensive procedure that has to include transpersonal psychology, mythology, philosophy, and comparative religion. The same is true in regard to psychospiritual crises. The experiences that constitute psychospiritual crises clearly are not artificial products of aberrant pathophysiological processes in the brain, but manifestations of the deeper levels of the psyche. Naturally, to be able to see it this way, we have to transcend the narrow understanding of the psyche offered by mainstream psychiatry and use a vastly expanded conceptual framework. Examples of such enlarged models of the psyche are the cartography described in my own books and papers, Ken Wilber's Spectrum Psychology, and we have spoken about Ken Wilber's um, integral spirituality concept on this podcast before, I highly recommend you check out Ken Wilber's work if you're interested in these concepts. Roberto Asagioli's psychosynthesis and Carl Jung's concept of the psyche as identical with the world soul or something called the anima mundi that includes the historical and archetypal collective unconscious. Such large and comprehensive understanding of the psyche is also characteristic of the great Eastern philosophies and the mystical traditions of the world. So that's a lot. (laughs) Understandable. But what I want you to understand what he's saying here is that mainstream psychiatry and the frameworks they use to understand psychological suffering are not adequate. And Carl Jung's work, Ken Wilber's work, and thousands of years ago, the great eastern philosophies as he describes right where many of these men actually borrowed slash some people might say stole these ideas where i think they were inspired by these ideas i just think sometimes there may have been an opportunity for more credit to be given to these eastern philosophies but what it goes back to what i was saying in the beginning of this episode for thousands of years the ancients and adepts of different esoteric practices and mystical traditions have understood the idea of the anima mundi or the world soul and these archetypes and the collective unconscious. The fact that there is a lot more going on than what meets the eye, and that perhaps we have lived many lives, that we are connected to those lives, we're connected to our other to other people. And in myths, And the kind of stories that were passed on from mouth to mouth in different cultures, there is a purpose to these because there are cyclical natures of life. There are psychospiritual occurrences and different types of awakening that have much broader meaning. And they knew how to handle this stuff a lot better than the average everyday psychiatrist operating from within the biomedical model of mental health. So a lot of people that are experiencing spiritual emergency are just falling through the cracks because of this lack of understanding. So he goes on to write, since functional psychoses are not defined medically, but psychologically, It's impossible to provide a rigorous differential diagnosis between psychospiritual crisis or spiritual emergency and psychosis in the way it's done in medical practice in relation to different forms of encephalitis, brain tumors, or dementia. Considering this fact, is it possible to make any diagnostic conclusions at all? How can we approach this problem? And what can we offer in lieu of a clear and unambiguous differential diagnosis between psychospiritual crisis and mental disease? A viable alternative is to define the criteria that would make it possible to determine which individual experiencing an intense, spontaneous, holotropic state of consciousness is likely to be a good candidate for a therapeutic strategy that validates and supports the process. And conversely, we can attempt to determine what circumstances using an alternative approach would be appropriate and when the current practice of routine psychopharmacological suppression of symptoms would be preferable. So essentially what he's saying here is that we need to have people that are skilled in identifying the nuances of spiritual emergency and knowing when the balance is required. When is maybe pharmaceutical intervention good for the safety of that person, how can we maybe use pharmaceutical drugs from a psychological perspective to maybe get someone into a good baseline, wean them off of them, and then help them move through these states and move through the crisis point into the opportunity, rather than making people long-term medical patients, which seems to be the incentive of the pharmaceutical industry, quite frankly. He goes on to say a necessary prerequisite for such an evaluation is a good medical examination that eliminates conditions which are organic in nature and require biological treatment. Once this is accomplished, the next important guideline is the phenomenology of holotropic state of consciousness in question. Psychospiritual crises involve a combination of biographical, perinatal, and transpersonal experiences. That were described in another context in the discussion of the extended cartography of the psyche. Experiences of this kind can be induced in a group of randomly selected, quote unquote, normal people, not only by psychedelic substances, but also by such simple means as meditation, shamanic drumming, faster breathing, evocative music, bodywork, and a variety of other non drug techniques. Those of us who work with holotropic breathwork see such experiences daily in our workshops and seminars and have the opportunity to appreciate their healing and transformative potential. In view of this fact, it's difficult to attribute similar experiences to some exotic and yet unknown pathology when they occur spontaneously in the middle of everyday life. It makes eminent sense to approach these experiences in the same way that they're approached in holotropic and psychedelic sessions, to encourage people to surrender to the process and to support the emergence and full expression of the unconscious material that becomes available. Taking a tiny break here, he talks about, you know, the fact that these spiritual crises can emerge because of all the stuff we've talked about, you know, trauma and maybe diving into psychedelics before you've really integrated. But he talks about how in his work you can actually induce a spiritual crisis, by a quote unquote normal, and I like that he used quotes, by giving them psychedelics, by having them meditate. Most people are so cerebral, they're living in their heads. So even if someone is just a quote unquote normal person, and I always say everyone has some shit under the surface, right? People that are like very adjusted to this materialistic society sometimes will experience like a great existential crisis and depression later in their life. So it's almost like these people are a ticking time bomb. So if they start meditating or they go to one of these like breathwork courses or something like that, it can trigger these experiences because there's that latent unconscious material under the surface. So he goes on to write, another important indicator is the person's attitude to the process and his or her experiential style. It's generally very encouraging when people who have a holotropic experience that they recognize that what's happening to them is an inner process, that they are open to experiential work and are interested in trying to move through it. Transpersonal strategies are not appropriate for individuals who lack this elementary recognition, use predominantly the mechanism of projection, or suffer from persecutory delusions. The capacity to form a good working relationship with an adequate amount of trust is an absolutely essential prerequisite for psychotherapeutic work for people in spiritual crisis. It's also very important to pay attention to the way clients talk about their experiences. The communication style in and of itself often distinguishes promising candidates from inappropriate or questionable ones. It's a very good prognostic indicator if the person describes the experiences in a coherent and articulate way, however extraordinary and strange their content might be. In a sense, this would be similar to hearing an account of a person who's just had a psychedelic session and intelligently describes what to an uninformed person might appear to be strange and extravagant experiences. This is another really important distinction that I think he makes because he basically talks about how these this kind of recovery and moving through psycho-spiritual experience isn't really appropriate for people who are projecting their shit all over other people or who suffer from what he calls persecutory delusions. I think there's a lot of persecutory delusions and projection going on, especially in our modern age. So I think it's beneficial for us to unpack that a bit. So Grov cautioning about the applicability of these kind of techniques to move through spiritual emergency, it's important for us to understand these things. So what is projection? Projection is a psychological defense mechanism where someone unconsciously externalizes their own undesirable feelings, impulses, or thoughts onto someone or something else. An example of projection is like blame. A person who is often angry might accuse others of being quick to anger. And jealousy. Someone who feels insecure in their relationship might constantly accuse their partner of cheating. Criticism too. So a highly critical person might feel that everyone else is judging them all the time. And another example of projection is victimization. So a person might believe others are always out to get them, projecting their own hostility onto others. So if someone is caught up in projecting their blame, jealousy, criticism, victimization, etc., all of their shadow material onto other people... It's going to be really hard for them to be a good candidate for successfully moving through these kind of psycho-spiritual methodologies of treatment that Stanislav Grof's work describes. And this brings us to what he calls persecutory delusions. Persecutory delusions involve a person's belief that they're being mistreated, spied on, or like conspired against in an unjust way. And these kind of delusions are often seen in psychiatric conditions like schizophrenia, severe depression, or people that are labeled with bipolar disorder or psychotic features. So different types of persecutory delusions are paranoia and schizophrenia, like a belief that you're being followed or watched by certain groups or organizations without any factual basis or Delusional disorder, like a conviction that a neighbor is poisoning their food somehow, despite there being bountiful evidence to the contrary. Or someone who's struggling with severe depression, believing that their family or friends are plotting to harm them or ruin their life without any evidence. And some people with a bipolar disorder label might think that coworkers or acquaintances are secretly trying to fuck them over in some way. And the thing is, is that oftentimes projection and persecutory delusions go hand in hand. So a person exhibiting both projection and persecutory delusions might display behaviors and beliefs characterized by both an externalization of internal negative feelings And this irrational belief that they're being targeted. This goes perfectly with our last series on trauma worlds. How viewing our lens like Earth, the world through this trauma world lens makes us feel like we're in a bad, dangerous world full of bad, dangerous people and that everyone is bad and dangerous and that somehow we're the center of this world where everyone's conspiring against us. So an example of a combination of projection and persecutory delusions might be an individual might believe their colleagues are conspiring against them to cause their professional failure, projecting their own feelings of insecurity and competitiveness onto others. And in this instance, the person is actually insecure and competitive, and instead of recognizing that those traits within themselves, they're convinced that it's all on the outside. So this person might interpret Innocent comments or actions as malicious and respond with hostility, further alienating themselves and reinforcing those delusional beliefs. So, in these kinds of cases, as Groff described in this last piece that we're covering, these transpersonal strategies for spiritual crisis might not be effective because these kinds of individuals might lack the insight into their own condition and have. A lot of difficulty forming a trusting therapeutic relationship because they're so caught up in their projection and their persecutory delusions. And these types of people, their mental state might require more conventional psychiatric treatments before they can benefit from transpersonal approaches. So I really wanted to go into that because this podcast is not just about shitting all over psychiatry and saying that there is no place for Maybe more medical approach to psychiatric breakdown or delusion because that's not the case. And there are people out there who are genuinely maybe in need of those kinds of interventions. The other day, someone followed me on Instagram and they tagged me in a couple of things. And I went to their profile and, like, their account was recently created and it was like 25 videos and all the videos have like the hashtag of help, help, help. And this person literally was uploading videos saying like basically that they had some kind of implant in their brain or that someone's watching them. And essentially, and then people were commenting on their comments and saying, hey, are you okay? I think you should maybe reach out for help. This might be a symptom of schizophrenia, which again, like internet people commenting I doubt that's the best approach, but some of these people I think had good intentions and the person, the owner of this account was responding with things like, fuck you, you don't know, you're just part of it, right? You're also in on it and this is a perfect example of projection and persecutory delusions and this kind of person would not be able to successfully move through some of this transpersonal treatment because in order to be able to do that, You need to be able to have insight into your shadows, understand, you know, the experiences that you're going through. So for example, someone might have be going through a spiritual crisis. Maybe they did some breath work or they had a small psychedelic journey and they had a vision of something, or maybe they saw something like the Bledsoe's did. They had an experience with non-human intelligence and they can coherently describe this yeah like and really sit down with a psycho-spiritual counselor and describe what they went through and then they also are aware of what's delusion and what's reality and they can move through that you have to have a certain level of self-awareness and an ability and a desire to understand your shadow material in order to successfully move through these kinds of treatments all right so that is it for part one of our exploration of spiritual emergency on part two we're going to be going through the different varieties of spiritual crises and it's going to be really interesting because we're going to be talking about shamanic crisis the awakening of kundalini episodes of unitive consciousness or what's called peak experiences psychological renewal through return to the center and the crisis of psychic opening and just as alexandra described in her voicemail i think this would probably give you a lot of language to some of the things that you may have experienced yourself because language is really ineffective in describing these kinds of experiences i've talked about this on the podcast trying to describe of a mystical spiritual experience to someone it's like reading about the flavor of an orange versus actually biting into an orange and tasting it yourself it's the same reason why many mystics and different spiritual people have been persecuted burned at the stake throughout the ages because mainstream religion wants you to experience spirituality through a priest only and when individuals would come out and say, hey, you can have this experience for yourself, often this would challenge the authority of the church in question, and these people would be killed or burnt or deemed that heretical or something like this. And it's all very fascinating and something that's not talked about often in our modern age. So I'm really excited to share this with you and we'll be diving straight into it next episode. So if you want to continue on with this exploration and you're not subscribed, make sure that you follow the podcast so that you can be notified each time I drop a new episode. If you are listening and you are not currently a Patreon subscriber and you want to unlock ad-free content, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and join our Discord community, you can do that by visiting patreon.com backfromtheborderline. And another way you can support my work is rating and reviewing the podcast, sharing an episode with someone that you care about, and following me on Instagram at back from the borderline. I share memes and story updates there, and it's a pretty fun thing if you like that kind of thing. It's giving big Tumblr energy, so if that's what you like, if you like moody quotes and memes, I've I'm serving them up on the daily. So that's it from me for now. I hope this episode has been informative and illuminating for you and I can't wait to see you right back here next week. And don't forget, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next time.